real life superpowers. I was fortunate enough that it happened gradually. This was not like work for 10 years, raise round, uh, you know, seed, pre-seed, seeds, uh, round A, round B, never take a salary, and then boom, I'm seven billion dollar exit, right? It, it was not this. This was a business that paid dividends. We lived from it. It was, in some sense, we were so old school, right? Nobody talks about like companies that just make money and, you know, pay dividends to their shareholders. That You don't read about that in, in economic newspapers. You just hear, yeah, these guys backed after, you know, not being profitable. Here's their three billion dollar paycheck. And like, and then people forget that there's businesses just like real businesses that just, you know, make money every month, pay it to their employees, pay it to their shareholders. Hey guys, in today's episode, we speak with Ori Weiss. He's an experienced founder and investor who achieved dreams that I think a lot of entrepreneurs have. He founded Excel Media PLC in 2003 and ran it for 16 years, growing it from a small startup to a London stock exchange listed leader, no less. In 2020, he founded Tim Odeon, which focuses on the higher education and vocational training sectors. I think all of us at the Real Life Superpowers community can relate to any doing that's focused on vocation and self-fulfillment, right? He's super successful, and as you'll hear, very down-to-earth and modest. I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as we enjoyed having it. Real Life Superpowers So Ori, welcome to Real Life Superpowers. Hey, thank you. The name puts me under a lot of pressure. I have to deliver superpowers, but I'll try. <laughs> well, you know, based on your resume, uh, you've already pretty much achieved a lot of stuff that I think a lot of entrepreneurs are pretty much dreaming of. Well, I, I, I hope I can share a bit. It's been a, it's been a hell of a ride. Well, we hope so too. We're counting on it. I actually want to take you to one specific moment and then, of course, we can, uh, you know, unpack everything. Um, but I'm, I'm so curious, like that moment when you took your small startup, uh, to an enlisted London stock exchange company. Do you remember what you felt? Okay. Uh, <laughs> I thought of that one before. Um, I think, I think there's three things. <laughs> Uh, two of them not so serious and one of them pretty serious. So the serious one, to get that one out of the way, was a great achievement. And I was super proud of everyone that was involved in that and everyone that, you know, this thing started basically me alone. And I say a basement, but it wasn't a basement. It was a second floor apartment, but the view wasn't so great. So let's call it a basement. Um, and then it ended up when we listed, it was about 450 people, multiple countries, you know, market leader and all that. And that scale up for me trying to mess around my after school activities um, to something of that scale without the help of everyone involved. That was the thing that was kind of the underlying feeling that, wow, this is I'm just a poster boy for this. But, you know, there's so many working hands and talented minds behind it. And then there's two other things. One thing is that London, as opposed to New York, you dream when you think of listing a business, you always think of ringing the bell. London doesn't have that. London has a plaque. Plaque? What, what, do you, what do you mean by a plaque? That's an anti yeah, They give you a plaque and you need to put it on something and then it starts the market. And I, like 10 seconds before I was supposed to do it, I asked the guy there, like, uh, you know, if I don't put the plaque, will the market still start? And he's like, yeah, it's, it's going to start. And I'm like, well, that's that. That's a, you know the bell will will not activate their market as well. So that that works for me. But the plaque is very it's very British. You crushed another fantasy of mine that the bell doesn't start the market. There's no correlation happen? from the offline and online market. <laughs> and then what was the third? 
The third one is that it wasn't my idea. So I, it's a funny story because when, when we, a couple of years before the IPO, uh, we, uh, me and my partners, we sold a majority share of the business to a private equity group. We kept ourselves pretty large shareholding, so we were very involved. And apparently one of the first things these, these people did is put a CFO in place, which there wasn't before, because we didn't think we need one, obviously, because, you know, every month when we counted the money, there was more than last month. So why do you need a CFO? Apparently, real, real business people don't think like that, but uh, they thought that. So they put a CFO and they told her, uh, she, she's a lady that was uh, very experienced. She's done this before. She's listed in NASDAQ. She's listed in London. They told her, they didn't tell me that she's going to list this thing. And uh, two years later, when we were doing the IPO Roadshow, she's like, you know that you know, our investors told me two years ago, this is what we're going to do, right? I'm like, no, I didn't know about that. So it wasn't my idea. But beyond that, it was, it was, a, it was a great um, kind of milestone. I, I don't think in any way a finale of anything. It was a finale of a certain part of our you know, evolution, but it was a start of a whole different one. So yeah, it was a super exciting day. I have to ask you something. I'm I'm an anti-exit person. I did uh, too. And I decided that every time you wake up, you have to think of another thing you want to do. And, and making that vehicle, like IPO is really tough. So, but at the end of the day, you have a vehicle that you can pivot and, and work with and it's, it's live. You have something that's alive and people don't get it that I'm not trying to be against the exit, right? It's great for the article and it's part of the CV, but having a vehicle is the big success. So you said you didn't want to, you didn't know you wanted to IPO. Like, have you ever sold a company before? And what is the minuses of doing an IPO? First, it's a, it's a really good question. And, and, you know, when the dust settles, right, you know, the glam, you take off the suit, which was also a challenge, uh, you know, to find a suit, but you take, you take off the suit, you know, you, go, you get back to the office, you know, okay, what now? And then you realize, you know, nothing has really changed, right? The only thing that's really changed on the plus side that you have, you know, uh, your, your, share, your share that you can give away has become a tradable asset, right? It's kind of like cash. You've got a, that's a, plot. a lot of people are interested in you. You have a lot of new investors, but the flip side of that, is that you have a ton of new things you need to do, right? And a ton of new procedures and compliance and all that. So an IPO uh, as an exit route would not be my recommended choice because it's not, that's not what, what it's intended for. An IPO is intended to bring new investors and to give companies, strong growing companies, a commodity to use for growth, right? Which is share, a share they can print out to, to buy more companies or a tool even to recruit high value employees. Because there's a world of difference between giving options to employees or management in a private small startup or medium startup or any kind of private business. But when you give them options uh, or any kind of model, whatever, in a listed business, that's cash, right? So that's obviously much more, much more, much more powerful. Uh, but it's by no means what I call an IPO. An IPO, I wouldn't call it an exit route. It's a, it's probably the hardest, most complex, agonizing exit route you can take. It's a round, actually. Like the thing I like about IPOs is, is that it's hard work and the transparency and the CFOs and the signing offs. But the good thing is that you, you have an investor that when you don't, you're not uh, listed, then you have an investor that looks you in the eyes and he has to believe you that in seven years he'll do something. And when you go and invest now in an IPO, he can sell it whenever. So you're doing a good job and everybody can do whatever you want. So why did you do it? That's why I'm asking again, because it sounds to me like you didn't want any more rounds, like you were making more money than, or am I wrong? No, actually you're pretty right. We never really had a round. So we're, we're one of those uh, chance miracle businesses Excel was that never raised money effectively for growth. So Excel was pretty much profitable from day one. 
uh, in a small scale in the beginning, but it kind of scaled up. The only time we brought, the first time we brought external money. Um, so we, the kind of the evolution of it, we, we launched in 2003, we kind of, myself and the two other founders, we merged our businesses somewhere in 2008 to become Excel. We both were doing, you know, similar complementary businesses. And then in 2012, we never, we, again, we were a super profitable business at the time. So we private equity came and bought a chunk of it. Then when we went to IPO, they were running or say they, but we were running a dual track to either, you know, raise a large amount of growth capital for a, a profitable business. It's not, we didn't need the money for, you know, to hire more developers or to pay our bills. We needed the money maybe to go buy competitors, right? That, that was the plan. So we, we kind of ran a dual track of um, maybe list, listing, maybe uh, raising from private sources. We ended up doing both. So actually four months before the IPO, we, we, we raised, uh, I think it was 15 million US, something like that, uh, at the value that was a bit lower than what we listed at. And then we ended up listing four months later. So um, the trajectory of getting the, why you, you're right to say, I didn't really think of raising money because we had a big cash pile. We were paying dividends pretty much since day one. And we, we, we did not really take that step of becoming this acquisitive, aggressive buyer. Uh, we kind of did that after the IPO. It kind of comes with a package, right? The, the, the public gives you money. Um, they don't want it back as dividends. You know, some of them do, you know, if you, but if you're buying from a London perspective, you're buying shares as kind of a Israeli performance marketing business. You don't really understand that's profitable. You want them to grow. You don't want them to pay you a dividend. You go to BT or, you know, Lloyd's Bank to give you a dividend. You go, you don't buy this for dividends, right? So, so this wasn't really part of, you know, uh, a very accurate goal, obviously. Uh, it sort of even happened uh, by chance, at least, you know, that turn of events. Um, but let's take a step back from that peak experience and sort of understand what led there. So was this your first business? What was your experience? How did you know how to navigate this? It's funny. Yeah, so I'll answer. This, is definitely, this was definitely my first business. Um, and I kind of randomly fell into it accidentally. So kind of my two-minute life history. Um, I finished the Army when I was 20, but less than 22. This was 2001. Literally, well, just hit me that was 20 years ago. That's a long time. <laughs> yep. uh, and then uh, I, I worked selling internet packages on the phone for six months, which was a uh, challenging. Yet We're in DSNR at NetVision. NetVision, okay. I was the I was that you know that annoying person that you call them and you say you want to disconnect and they tell you to speak to this person. Yes. Was that person. <laughs> <laughs> oh no. NetVision is 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 like for our listeners, it's the thing that goes wee 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 Like that's the internet, right? Yeah, and that uh, was we were we were upgrading people from dial up to this new amazing technology of fast internet. And we can only do it in certain parts of the country. And then when it didn't work, they called me to disconnect angrily and I would try to preserve them. It was it was a long six months of my life that gave me a lot of stomach pains and gray hair. Some of them are still here. <laughs> but um, after that, you know, all my friends, as you do in Israel, all my friends went to Asia uh, or New Zealand or whatever. I think some to India, some to Thailand. I did not. Just to travel, you mean, right? Yeah, they went for the post-army traveling, grow long hair, get high kind of thing. I didn't do that. I ended up living in Cyprus, working for an online casino uh, somehow. So uh, wait, wait, what do you mean somehow? Yeah, that's 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 a, not a somehow move. You moved away from Israel. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no. So, um, so I, I got approached by a friend of mine from high school that just started working at some company that was. I'm from Haifa originally. Um, so, it's a company that was working and said, "Yeah, we, we we're doing something online. Um, it's uh, something with advertising. You want to come join us?" I'm like, "Hey, I don't know anything about online stuff. 
I don't know anything about advertising. What am I going to, oh, you speak, you speak English pretty well and you know how to use email, right? I'm like, okay, I'll give it a shot. So basically they launched a very early, I dare say primitive online casino back in 2001, because you got to remember 2001, the internet was not, or 2002, the internet was nothing like it looks today. It looks like today. It was primitive chat rooms and dial up internet. That's vision. Exactly. All that noise. And we were, I was employee number five. Um, oh. and so we, I, I was, uh, and the guys that, that founded that they went and found a lot, like really interesting businesses later on, uh, plus 500 probably heard of those guys. Yeah. Yes. They founded that 10 years later. Um, and we ended up, I ended up working for them. Did not know anything, did not know what I'm doing at all. Uh, but kind of picked it up, sending emails, creating an affiliate network. Um, it was, it was kind of really, it was the wild west back then. Like uh, you can do anything from anywhere with any payment method. Uh, you didn't need to understand what you're doing. It just kind of worked. Uh, after a little while, we um, we decided to move to Cyprus because we want to get a Cypriot license and all something like that. So we ended up four Israeli guys in a villa in Cyprus uh, running an online casino. Um, we lived pretty close to Ayanapa, which was pretty fun. <laughs> but, uh, but beyond that, um, it was a learning experience. Fast forward one year later, my parents, or especially my mom, decided for me I'm going to have the university because you're supposed to. And if you don't, you're in trouble. To what university? Uh, I, I went to Technion. So yeah, my whole family is there. So if, in our family, if you don't go to Technion, you're kind of out of the Friday dinner. <laughs> yeah, that's why I don't go to Friday dinners. My dad said the same thing. <laughs> so yeah, so I, I, I still, when I'm in Israel, I still go to the Friday dinners. I'm still allowed because I barely clawed my way through a bachelor's degree, barely. Are you an engineer uh, as, as a profession, like uh, academically? Or... Yeah, I'm, I'm by training an industrial engineer, but um, I wouldn't let, if I were you, I wouldn't let me engineer anything. <laughs> better that I do what I do. Sounds like my lawyer story. It's my story as well. Yeah. I don't know how to engineer anything. In it. But industrial engineering is one of those things, and with no disrespect, there's a lot of, I know of a lot of talented people and smart people that studied it. It's kind of those things that you're not really sure what you want to study, and you end up, yeah, I'll take this as kind of a doorway to everything else, but I didn't use it as a doorway. I just left it. That was it. So, but I, I, it was pretty, honestly, it was pretty tough for me because, you know, because my, my, not tough, but my mother, uh, you know, made this very aggressive move of signing, signing me up for university and not even telling me about it. And then I end up finding that I got accepted and I should come back to Israel. So obviously I, <laughs> I made a deal with my employers. They kind of started working remotely. And uh, that kind of evolved into me not only working with them, but also approaching a bunch of other gaming companies that were popular then uh, in Scandinavia and the UK and stuff like that and offering them my services. And that kind of paid for high, that paid for university pretty much. Wait, your mom signed you up. She made you leave well, or, or almost leave this amazing opportunity. And, they, and your parents didn't pay for university? No, I'm, I'm kidding. It paid for the lifestyle during university. Okay, fair enough. He was he was the cool kid in the in, in the campus. Yeah. I, I actually I was I, I made a deal with my parents. Okay, if I'm coming back, they had some old apartment that they didn't use. I'm gonna live there, and you're gonna get me your banged up old car that you're not using. I'm gonna get that. You negotiated. You're negotiating the return. That's amazing. Okay. I was having a blast. It's, it had it had to be a little a little flexibility there. So I came back, <laughs> and then I kind of worked on my own for a while, and. Um, Luckily, this is this is something that is kind of funny because it seems like the choice of partners I have in my life always has an impact of where my life is going to lead. So my um, my ex girlfriend at the time she was from Scandinavia and I spent a lot of time in Scandinavia. Why do I mention this? Because if you look at the IPO documents for Excel, eighty percent of Excel's revenue is from Scandinavia, and that's not a, that is the only reason for that, by the way, because I was spending time there and most of our clients were from there. 
so kind of because of her, a year later, I ended up discovering the gaming market in Scandinavia. Um, started doing a lot of things there. It worked out worked out really well. How did you meet her? In Cyprus, uh, just randomly. Okay. And, and then, uh, and by the way, the reason I live in the Czech Republic for the last 10 years is because my wife, which I met here, is from here. Wait, the Czech, uh, she's on the Czech side or the Slovakian side? The, the Czech side. So as you can see, the, the choice of uh, my partners in my life kind of leads me, leads, leads, it's a kind of repeating theme of they have a big impact on my life. Yeah. So then, you know, the business kind of grew. It, like I said, it was profitable from day one. Uh, I was running an affiliate network then, which kind of in layman's terms means I was connecting potential advertisers to gaming operators, right? So kind of being a middleman. Pretty quickly, I figured out uh, middleman's nice, but the margin's not good enough and it's not stable enough. So I'm going to actually learn what these guys that I'm bringing in to promote these, the, these companies. What are they doing? Um, kind of uh, fast-tracked learning SEO, uh, use the money from the network to start buying out some of these small companies that I was working with, and then continued pretty much on my own. And that was kind of the foundation of what Excel Media calls publishing these days. It's our publishing network. But this was really profitable because it was in the right place, in the right time, the right languages. Everyone else was doing English. We did 20 other languages, Swedish, Norwegian, German. Where am I? Am I in 2012? How old are you in? No, not yet. Um, I'm 24 at the time. It's like 2004, 2005. But this has nothing to do with the initial Cyprus business? No, this was evolved out of it. Right. Okay. So the Cy- I still worked with the Cyprus guys, but they, they already left. They already sold and moved on. So it was not, it was just another client. Um, and then, you know, fast forward to 2008, I met a guy that was living, a friend of mine that was living down the street from me in Haifa which was also like everyone at the time that I in my network was promoting online gaming companies. He was doing it for paid search, paid media. He, he had a partner that was his tank buddy and they were both doing really well. We said, okay, let's merge. Let's, let's merge up, move to Tel Aviv together. So then we really got ourselves a basement next to Dizengoff. Uh, Why did you decide to merge? Like two partners are doing great. Why would you merge? You don't want to do an IPO. I remember you said that you like, it wasn't in your head. So what, what's the merge for? Two reasons. One, we really liked working together and it was fun, admit. That's a great reason. The best, the best reason, right? And the second reason, which may be a little more professional one, was that we our businesses were super complementary. So I ran a publishing network, which in, again means comparison sites about different products, right? And an affiliate network, which is kind of a multi-level marketing thing. They ran a media buying, uh, meeting buying business. So the, why is this complimentary? Because it kind of covers all the angles of getting users, getting leads into businesses. It's, we call it uh, push-pull, right? So what I was doing was pulling them in with content. They were pushing out advertising to them. So it's kind of you, together, we were much stronger because we covered all the spectrum of options of getting leads. Because we are, in fact, we were a lead generation business, right? That's what we did. We just had different methods of doing it. And it was really fun to work. Is it still fun to work with? Like, are they still merged with you? Are they still? No, I was the longest to stay. So I stayed until 2019. I was running the top co on top. I was the CEO of the top co. Um, and um, then one of them left pretty early on after we merged, kind of faded away and started his own business, faded aside and started his own businesses. And the third one ran the Israeli operation um, up until 2014, a bit before the IPO. He was replaced by someone I think you know, Noah, by Inbal. Yeah, I, I know. I know Inbal Avi. He was replaced by her. Um, and she ran it. She ran Israeli operations for about five years. So something about the IPO journey, um, the CFO during that journey is your, is your life lifeline. If they don't know what they're doing, you're screwed. <laughs> and luckily, she really knew what she was doing. She's a great job. 
she even criticized me for wearing two really colorful socks during the IPO Roadshow, which apparently is a big no-no in London. They hate that. And uh, brown shoes, definitely a big no-no. So she was very critical of my fashion statements, but uh, I tried to pull a Zuckerberg on them. No, so that's super important. So 2012, she brought in, started structuring the business and then led it to an, we led it together to an IPO. Uh, it was about a year, I would say before the, it takes, it took us about a year. I've heard it could take anything from a year and a half to, if you're really quick, like eight, nine months for a real full-fledged IPO. There's all kinds of direct listings like Spotify did. And obviously SPACs is a different animal completely. Uh, and that, that functions in a very different way. Uh, so I have not tried one myself. But uh, yeah, so so we went through the whole journey. It was a it was quite an adventure. But yeah, for me as someone that didn't went, I you know I I, I felt like I kind of went through a crash course MBA in that year. I kind of learned all kinds of things I didn't know before. Which for me, I kind of try. I wasn't sure if I want to be part of this because I also I, I wasn't so keen on all the exposure. You get very much exposed once you become public. You know, pretty much everyone knows your shoe size, right? So it's uh, <laughs> um, I, I'm I'm. I tend to be very private about my 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 private life, my home life, and all that. So, obviously, you know, this is not some mega stock in Nasdaq. This was a relatively small share in London, so it's not that I became some business rock star. But I was very kind of concerned. I had elevated concerns, right? That, uh, but but it was a great adventure, and I would definitely recommend it for anyone that wants to kind of cut to the chase of what it is. If you want to you to really grow. A business that generates long-term revenue for shareholders that's the path right that's one of the paths if you want to if you want a quick exit look look at look in other places not here like this is it's a journey it's it's it, as i said in the beginning it's the start of a journey it's not the end that's super interesting but i'm also a bit confused because it sounds like you know you, you you were adventurous so you went to cyprus and then you were mommy's good little boy uh, and, and you just came back because pretty much she said so. Uh, I'm, I'm guessing you also did have that uh, fear inside whether she planted it or not, that if you don't go to university, you'll be doomed and you need that sort of that fallback. But, but okay, that happened. And then sort of out of university, it sounds like it was almost smooth sailing and it sounds like you sort of had a conviction but on the other hand, you were pretty much experimenting because this was all a new territory. And it also sounds like many people came in and out of the picture, which to me, if I were leading a business and it was my first business and I'm seeing people deciding to opt out, I think that would make me a little insecure. Um, so I'm trying to understand how were you able to keep focused, centered and navigate so much uncertainty and to such a level of success, like something, I, I'm, I'm missing a little bit of the, of the puzzle here. First of all, my mom will be super happy for what you said. You're so good. You're so good with mothers. <laughs> but look, I think for me personally, and I, I can't speak for the others, uh, but for me personally, I was, the conviction I had, that this is a great business that I love doing. I love what I do. I love the people I do it with. Um, and this is a great business I want to keep growing. The IPO was kind of a small little, uh, it was kind of a little, uh, I don't know, some fireworks on the way. But it didn't change anything. The path was still, we're going to grow. We're going to do new things. We're going we're gonna to hire new people. We're going to go into new sectors. We're going to, you know, grow, grow, grow. I didn't really care about that. That was a nice kind of, kind of. it was a great party, so to speak, on the way. But for me, for the fact that other people used it, and look, we, we talked a lot about the investors this weekend. These guys, it was pretty obvious in retrospect. This was their, they didn't do it. I don't know. How, how do you translate to English? They didn't do it for nothing, right? 
they they didn't they did it for um, for to have an exit route in a couple of years, which exactly what happened, right? So they, in 2017, they, and also myself, I, I sold a lot of shares to the market. I ended up buying back. They sold everything. I didn't buy back because they're a private equity house. You know, that's what they're supposed to do. But uh, to answer your question, my conviction was, this is a fantastic business. I'm, I, I felt, I always felt like the heart and soul of it because I was the first one in the door, right? That was the first one. I, the first Ikea table that we put together, that was my table in my office. So I, I kind of felt like, I'm, I always felt, I admit that this is something I, not disappointed, but this is something I look back kind of bittersweet. I always thought, thought that I'm going to be uh, the last one out, but at some point, 2019, I decided, okay, it's time to move on to other things, 16 years, enough time. Um, but the, the answer to your question, the simple one is that I didn't, I kind of didn't let people coming in, coming out, coming in, IPO, I didn't let that distract me. I just loved what I did. I loved and, and it kept going with it. And at what stage... Did you start making a lot of money and sort of feeling, okay, my life is changing? That, that's, that's interesting. Uh, I think, and I had a conversation, I have a lot of conversation in the past about this. Like a lot of people, uh, I'm going to try to not use four letter words, but a lot of people become different, right? When some big exit event enters their life or all of a sudden they get a big paycheck from whatever. I, I was fortunate enough that this was not like, it happened gradually. This was not like work for 10 years, raise round, uh, you know, seed, pre-seed, seeds, uh, round A, round B, never take a salary and then boom, $7 billion exit, right? It, it was not this. This was a business that paid dividends. We lived from it. It was, in some sense, we were so old school, right? Nobody talks about like companies that just make money and, you know, pay dividends to the shareholders. That You don't read about that in, in economic newspapers. You just hear, yeah, these guys packed after, you know, not being profitable. Here's their $3 billion paycheck. And like, and then people forget that there's businesses just like real businesses that just, you know, make money every month, pay it to their employees, pay it to their shareholders. Have real cash flow problems. R- Rand Fishkin preaches about it and spoke to us about it. The, the irony of it, the people seem to get not get so excited from companies like that anymore. Because I, I'm involved these days. I've been investing in businesses, you know, in other sectors for close to 15 years now. So one of my, my biggest investments in terms of potential is a company that hasn't been profitable for eight years since it launched. It's not going to be probably, it doesn't want to be profitable for the next three, four years, but it's already probably on its path to be a multi-unicorn in the next couple of years. Uh, but nobody even talks about profit at all. I have a problem with that, like a serious problem with that. Like I, I, I really get you like on, on mentoring side, I'm sure you do a lot of it because you're really talented. So um, what happens is the exit that you get in a newspaper, everybody get excited about, but having a vehicle like profitable, like Checkpoint or SodaStream or like Excel Media that is profitable, no one appreciates, but it's giving most of the jobs and it's doing what it should do. And they don't get excited because everybody wants to go to the next thing. It's sort of like uh, everybody does it for their parents. It's like you going to Technion and not having that vehicle and actually doing their dream. So it, it's like you're on point that people aren't excited about profitable businesses. They're excited about flukes. And it's, uh, it's professionalism to, to do a profitable business. No, it's, it's, a, diff- it's a different DNA also. Let's look, I think for me, or maybe it was also a timing thing. Look, this is, you got to remember, this started 20 years ago or 50, almost, almost 20 years ago. How did you get funding, by the way? That's a good question. Who, who did you ask for funding in the beginning? I didn't. It just, I just started working. <laughs> I just started doing it on my, you know, doing, sp- spending my time not, when I'm not doing homework or, you know, going out to drinks with friends. This is what I was doing. Or playing online poker, which I was playing a ton of back then. But, 
We had a really interesting conversation with Rand Fishkin. Uh, he wrote a book called Lost and Founder, which I highly recommend if you haven't read it. Um, he's also the founder of Moz, which he sold, and he now has a, a startup called SparkToro. And he speaks about the glorification of the VC-funded startups and how much that's a bubble and how much people should opt and strive for a lifestyle business because the VCs suck the life out of you. And then if you don't end up that 1% that succeeds, they just, you know, give up on you. At least, you know, that's his angle. Like, do you feel like there's truth in that? I think there is. And by the way, I, it's funny, we just started looking at this Park Toro literally a week ago to use it for something. But uh, plus, obviously, you know, use models for it's a bit unfair because uh, I agree with him completely, but it's also a bit unfair because some businesses can't be profitable in the beginning. So again, I, I go back to some of my investments, right? So there's a company called Muse, um, which develops enterprise software for hotels. I invested in this thing three, eight years ago when it was literally four, four guys in a basement in Prague. So now it's after round B about to do a round C, big investors like Battery and Salesforce and these kind of, everyone's in there already. There was no way in the world that you could build such a complex product and be profitable at the same time. Like it, 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 we were lucky, and I, I don't I definitely, uh, you know, Rand's story is different. Moss is a much more complex product than what we did. But in the beginning, what I did was very straightforward, right? It was it was not that much tech involved. Now, what Excel does is a lot more tech involved. So lifestyle business is great for certain things, but I don't want to kind of deflate uh, all the VC world. It's unfair. As I, I work with VCs and my other investments and. For, for example, for, you know, complex tech businesses or for pharma or for healthcare, there's no way in the world you can make a profitable cash generating business in the beginning. Um, and even if you were to do that, you would definitely be sacrificing the quality of what you make. And it's funny that we had this discussion in, in news circa 2015. They actually had a bunch of clients. They kind of bootstrapped with my kind of pre-seed angel investment all the way to paying clients. They, no, these guys were actually were a miracle. They had paying clients before I bootstrapped them. <laughs> so they, they somehow managed to do it and they came to me and like we had a discussion should we hire more developers or should we hire more salespeople? and that's exactly this question right because if you're building a lifestyle business you go buy you go hire salespeople and make more money and you know get make yourself some kind of margin but if you're a vc backed uh future unicorn then you don't do that you 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 kind of you dig your cash flow well even deeper uh, you build, you you get a pre-seed, you get a seed, you get a round A, and you and you hire more developers and less salespeople, right? So, do you advise them to, to take a developer or or a salesperson? I told I told them take a developer, take a bunch of developers, and we'll go get funding because the the sector they were going into and they are in now is super complex. If we would come with a half baked product, we could probably get some clients locally, or but we would never scale, right? And now Muse is again, I'm obviously. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm not objective on this in any way, but it is considered one of the disruptors of the hospitality industry tech-wise. And that's because they have a tremendously talented tech team that they spend and a tremendous product team, tech team, and then added all the other other people, uh, sales, finance, but first and foremost was always product and tech. So to answer your question, for a lifestyle business at the time, you can do that if you've got a cash generative business by nature. And Excel, what I did in the beginning in 2003, four was super cash generative. It was also a good time, good place. I don't want to, I'm not trying to underplay it, but it was easier to, there than, you know, if, if you're launching some new tech business now, you can't do that, right? So, or you, 
I don't think how so. do you choose how to invest? This is interesting for me because you, you physically are a really entrepreneur. You're active in investment with Muse. So you're an active uh, investor. So do you, how do you, what, are, what are the three, three reasons you decide to invest in someone? Let's see if it's going to be three. I'm going to try three. You can do, you can do one as well. I'm just, I tried to challenge you. The main one uh, is always the team. And, uh, and the team, not necessarily that all of them have the, you know, the best degrees from the best schools, but that they fit, right? So, and I, I'll stick to Muse as an example. The reason I'm doing that is because I really think it's a, it, it's a good case study for, for investment for me. I joined them in the beginning and I saw how they, I've been there since the beginning, right? So I've seen the whole journey. And Muse, you had an interesting combo of a, a dreamer and a doer. Both of them super talented, super smart. So the dreamer, uh, and he's going to, I don't know, I don't know if he's going to like me saying this, Richard, I'm sorry if you don't like it. There's a guy called Richard and he comes from a family of hotels. He's, He's this visionary guy that likes to think of the future of tech, the future of hospitality, read 17 books per day. Um, very kind of, you know, amazing show, but not just a show. It's a lot of knowledge there, but tell him to run a meeting. It's going to start late and it's going to go, it's going to run late. Right. Uh, but then you have Matt, the partner there, which is a guy that came from the Hilton management fast track hospitality school in, in Holland. Um, really knows how to run day to day stuff. And at the beginning was them and two other developers, which, you know, no offense, one of them is still with the team and he, he knows I like him. So I'm going to say they, they acted like developers, right? Very smart, talented developers, but I didn't get much of a, I got a lot of IQ vibe there at the time, but I didn't really get any touch for the EQ. Now there's a lot more EQ there as well, so it's fine. So, but the combo of this kind of dreamer and doer that, and both of them understanding the business. This is not a dreamer that doesn't know what he's doing. This is a dreamer that his family ran, ran hotels before and knows the pain point. And the guy that has been using the legacy system, which is Matt, the, the CEO, I thought that was an incredibly strong combo. I didn't understand 95% of what they were telling me, I admit, <laughs> but I, 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 got, I got hooked on the dream. Then they said me, okay, you know what? You don't, I remember the conversation also. He said, you don't understand what we're doing? Go look at a hospital, go look at a, at a property management system. Go to a hotel or here we'll show you how Oracle looks like. Oracle is kind of the incumbent in that industry. And I looked at this thing and I thought, there's, you know, I, I consider myself mar relatively intelligent and I can't understand anything of what's on this screen. And I think of a hotel employee that needs to use this. Okay, we got to change this. So that was, so it was a combination of the team. I'm sorry. A real need. Yeah, it's a combination. If there's a team, strong team, if there's an industry that needs to be disrupted, if there's a unique, I'm not, I'm not obsessed about unique products. I got to admit, um, I'm obsessed about products that have a proven business case. I, I'm, I'm, but I'm also risk averse. I'm, I'm not a gambler when it comes. I'm a gambler and I play poker for years, but I, I'm not a gambler when it comes to investment. I invest in things that have been proven before. I, my favorite sweet spot is something that has been done before but not done well. That is an industrial engineering thing to say, by the way. Really? Yeah, because you're looking for efficiency. It's not done well. It's, it's not like you're always going for efficiency. That's what, that's what they teach you, don't they? You're going to ruin my story that it didn't help me at all in my life. <laughs> if you're going to throw in that I actually... I was trying to, to make you happy that you didn't waste three years of your life. Like I, I wish it were three, but four. <laughs> okay, then, then it was a waste. Four is too much. Sorry about that. My bad. Okay. Yeah, so look, to answer your question, definitely team, definitely product market fit. And what's the, what would be the third? No, I think that's it. 
Fair enough. And and Ori, these days you're super focused on uh, and on vocational uh, ventures and on specifically a venture that has to do with vocation and education. Do you want to tell us a bit about that and what drove you there? Sure, I, I'm happy to. So look, um, what I'm doing now, Excel drove users to um, gaming, to casinos, poker rooms, sports books, uh, credit card companies, insurance companies, banks. Okay, a little better karma maybe with banks, not, maybe not so much, but a little better karma with banks than credit than gambling. But what I was looking for after I left Excel, um, the executive role in 2019, I was looking for, I always say this, it's actually, it's, it's, True story. The first thing I did, I made an over-under bet with my wife about how long I'm going to stay idle. I took the over on six months. She took the under and obviously she won uh, because I was, I was getting bored. Um, so I decided, okay, what am I going to do? Um, and education, the specific sector, what we do there, we actually refer leads to universities and vocational schools uh, from anything from a vocational certificate course to a PhD. Only in the U.S. at this point, but you know, planning for the future, uh, planning in the future to go to other regions as well. And you're a founder of this, right? Yeah, yeah. Founder, uh, I, I, um, I, I bankrolled it pretty much alone in the beginning. We did a small round now, kind of a friends and family that I was involved in. I invested as well because it started to become pretty pricey, and I wanted to kind of share the risk with others and to bring, mainly to bring some strategics um, that I know from the industry. Um, so that that was great. Um, and the idea here is basically to do comparison sites. So instead of comparing uh, credit cards, we compare different options of getting a nursing degree or and what are the what are the employment statistics and what is the best degree to get if you want to become something or what uh, what certification course helps improve your expected earnings or we, we take a very data driven approach to uh, to the process of educational choices because the funny thing is that I spent about a year digging into the kind of the um, how people behave. Okay, I'm a, I'm a unique example. I didn't actually choose my own school. Somebody else did for me. But uh, most people, they kind of they kind of apply a finger in the air approach to choosing a degree. Like or like, oh, uh, my parents went to Princeton, so I'm going to go there. Um, I like uh, economic. I want I want to you know be an analyst at uh, I don't know Morgan Stanley, so I should go study a business degree or a finance degree. But they don't really look into the. They don't kind of look at the data, right? So that's kind of the, what we're trying to do here. But yeah. Um, it's, I got to interrupt you to say it's really interesting to me. I'm surprised to hear you use the word data here because I, I thought you would say they don't really look inside and try to understand what they're passionate about and what their vocation should be. So how, how is data the answer? Well, data is the answer for part of it. I'll give you an example, right? So somebody is passionate about being a therapist. Somebody really wants to become a therapist and has a bachelor's degree in, I don't know, political science, whatever. So, oh, oh, I want to be a therapist. I'm going to do a master's in psychology and then do the clinical thing. No. In the U.S., for example, you could take a very different degree that potentially is much easier and much cheaper uh, of a master's in social work. And in a bunch of states, you are actually much more employable and you would make more money on average and you would do the same job. Okay. I mean, data to help you make the optimal choice. But look, um, there's also we, we, we come to the, also from the angle of passion, right? Because we, we, we come to this not just by comparing degrees. We also compare uh, what you actually do. So we use all kinds of tools to say, I like to talk to people. I like to uh, be helpful. I want to spend a lot of time outside the office. Here's a, here's a great career for you. And to get to this career, here are the best you know, educational paths for you. So there's a lot of angles. Data, I know it's a bit, it's maybe not so, it's not so emotional, right? It doesn't because you're not driven, but 
emotions great, but this is such an impactful decision where you're going to study and what career you're going to take. I think data should have more of a place in it. No, but it also sounds like uh, you're using behavioral data. So it's not like just statistics of, you know, how much you're going to earn and in what state. It's, uh, it sounds like it's, it's, it's deeper than that. It, it's more than that. You're right. And um, it just feels to me like uh, I always, I always give, I'm not going to give the whole speech, but the speech is that, you know, if I'm, if I, when I help people choose slot machines, with all the respect to how important I was for their life, it doesn't really matter what slot machines they chose, right? Like, like we, can, we can admit it. It depends if they won or lost. <laughs> yeah, of course. Statistically, they didn't. So, you know. <laughs> um, so if I would, for, but for example, when we, when we help people choose a mortgage, refinance a mortgage, right? Or we help people get insurance that has a bigger impact on their life. And then I thought, okay, what, are pe- what is something that people spend a lot of time doing, cost them a lot of money, and impacts their future the most? And to me, it was pretty obvious education. Right, because in the U.S. at least you pay a, you pay a small fortune to get a master's degree or even a bachelor's degree in some schools. Uh, you spend three, four, five years of your life, and it will help you. It will have an impact on what job you'll get and where you'll get it, right? Which impacts your life. What 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 crazy statistic can you give me? Like what, between the West Side and East Side, like what's the most leads that like what what do people want to learn more? I'll show, I'll tell you a statistic that surprised me that there was a huge I mentioned that before there was generally in the U.S. a huge disproportionate surge in masters and masters in social work for example and then when I first saw this I'm like how many social workers are there out there I didn't know there's so many apparently most of these people are taking a masters in social work to become a counselor or a therapist right um, so that that's an interesting statistic I didn't know about um, for we came up with it's funny like a few months ago we did a little research. So one of my, one of my team, he he uh, he's really he, he loves playing around with data. He came up, crunched a lot of numbers, and came up that Montana has a shortage in firemen, and that he expects that there are going to be state subsidies to get people to study, uh, get certif- certif- become certified firemen. Well, how did he do that? Uh, he actually looked at the number of um, of wildfires, firemen stations, or fire people. I don't know what the term is today. I think it's a firefighter. Yeah, firefighter. There you go. So he 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 compared the amount of uh, in different cities in in the states or in different areas, and he found out that there's in the next ten years there's expected to be I don't know like thirty or forty percent shortage of firefighters in Montana, and then and then we saw six months later that all of a sudden the the amount of people applying to certification course in Montana increased exponentially. But you didn't fill in the gap, right? It's not like you help people choose that profession because you tell them, look, that's an opportunity, or do you do that? We, we, we were late to the party. If we would have found that out a year, two years ago. But look, this is just an example of something. Next time, we'll hopefully we'll find something that right. hasn't been, that was already found at the time when we found it. But just, you asked for an interesting number. I, I was surprised that Montana has a disproportionate uh, small amount of firefighters. Yeah, we were just talking about it. Earlier, yeah, we, right? we know that. We're, we're really good at the firefighters. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, everyone knows that. That's why we didn't. Yeah, that's why we're so surprised that your company was so late for the party. Who did you who did you partner up with uh, for this venture? It's uh, some people from my past and some people that are new to me. So the first to join in was uh, another guy called Ori. Uh, he was head of product and SEO uh, for a competitor of Excel Media. We also uh, so he he runs our. Um, he runs our operations. He runs our SEO. We have a, a a group of people. We have also a lady called Anna, which comes. We mentioned a lot of social workers. So she was a social worker for many many years. Uh, she and, and an editor. So she runs our editorial. Editorial is a big part of this. Not from the gaming industry whatsoever. Uh, so social workers probably the furthest away you can from the gaming industry. Um, 
for BizDev, um, I took uh, joint. Well, I was lucky to be joined by uh, my previous head of BizDev at Excel, uh, a guy called David that worked worked at Excel for many years. Um, and then the rest, so we have a team here, and um, I live in the Czech Republic, so we have a small team here in Prague. We have uh, a bunch of contributors in the U.S. Do anything from design to social uh, to uh, content development, editorial. We have a development center in Serbia. But from who did I bring in? Just two people that I knew from before, and the rest are, are new. All right. And then what's the what's the goal for the for the company? IPO. <laughs> no, only only if I get a bell. I'm not doing the plaque again. Okay, <laughs> fair enough. The goal is to have a successful, impactful business. And the word impactful, a, a lot of people throw this word around, but I truly believe that this uh, could be impactful, right? This could really help people make better choices, optimal choices for their lives. I want this to be a self-sufficient, uh, you know, sustainable, growing uh, performance marketing company, of course, but I want it to have a positive impact. I kind of joke around, and this is true, that when we started this before it was a real business, you know, we had a Trello board for all kinds of things we wanted to do. We called it Project Karma because we both considered ourselves karma fixers after 20 years of gambling. Uh, so I'm, I'm yeah, I think I, I hopefully we will we'll fix our karma at some point. I, I think I know your superpower, right? I want to know your, what you think the superpower is. These questions are hard. <laughs> you knew we were going to ask that. Yeah, I should have, I should have said come. Um, no, but I'll, I'll tell you something. I don't, I don't know if it qualifies as a superpower, but it's definitely something that I think is very helpful for me. Um, I think I've always been very good at knowing what I'm not good at and what I think I need help or I need people that know how to do better than me. And I think that's something a lot of founders struggle with because as you say, uh, you, even this terminology, right? The super, superpower. Okay, I think... I think I'm pretty good at a bunch of stuff. I, I, I have an, a good kind of good, a good median. I'm, I'm, um, I'm, I don't like giving myself compliments. I know it's pretty obvious here, but I, I think I'm pretty, I, I'm, I'm good at presenting what I, expressing what I want to express. I, I, I think ahead, I plan, but the, for example, something I, I really am not particularly good or particularly like doing is running operations. I'm, I'm not, uh, I can do it. I've done it at Excel. I did it pretty much in the beginning until we were 20, 25 people. And then I realized, no. Uh, and here, very early on, I figured, okay, I need somebody that's really experienced and driven by this and loves doing this. Um, and as well as, um, as well as, there's a bunch of stuff like that. I'm not going to go and give you all the list of things I suck at. But, uh, <laughs> but, um, but um, I think that's, if you ask me what is a, a superpower, I don't know if it's a superpower, but it's a super important power. To to uh, to be honest with yourself, right, and to be humble enough to bring somebody to help you. I agree. I have to say, truthfully, I think approachability is the word. You're so you're also charismatic and everything, and you're smart. But I think you're approachable. I think people would really like working for you. Like I feel in the conversation that you don't like giving conversations. You empower people, and you're approachable, which is no matter you have you're so humble. You know, it was a billion dollar uh, company you managed since you're 24, which is incredible. Uh, and and you're just really approachable and, and kind. So I think that you're working with teams from your past just means a lot that they keep on working with you. And you're the last to, you're almost the last to leave the door, anyways. You know, like historically, which just means that you're working for other people and you want them to be happy, which is a really good superpower, approachability. And what's your what's your kryptonite? Ooh, um, well that's an easy one. Uh, <laughs> toxic people, toxic people. Um, and I, I, I. What do you mean by that? I mean by the, okay, this is something. This is something that I don't. I don't think this is official terminology in business schools. I apologize for that. But 
if I speak to someone and I, I get the vibe from them that they don't get it. And what is it? I don't know what it is, but, but you feel it, right? I'm very, uh, some people, I, I, I need my team to be easygoing, um, not take themselves too seriously, plus kind of have priorities in life. Remember that work is work and it's fine. And look, this may be a privilege of where I am in my life that I'm, I'm of course, this is, I'm really driven to make this succeed, but I'm doing this because I'm, I'm passionate about it, right? But I just have zero tolerance for neg not negativity. Negativity is okay. Like you, you can do if if there's a place for it sometimes. But like this toxic environment, like by people that are not fun, not cooperative. Like and I, I, I don't know that that that's a kryptonite for me. It just it 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 turns me. Um, it makes me much less excited to come to the office or to you know pessimists. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I need positive energy, right? And I don't mean that in a colorful, in the colorful rainbow way. I mean that it needs to be fun, right? So just uh, telling you, statistically, over thirty percent of the people that, which is a majority, say their superpower is uh, um, optimist. So fully optimism is is a great environment to work in. So I can get, like I really connect to that negativity or or pessimists are peeing the ass, and uh, we, we should kill them. I'm joking. <laughs> Great, uh, great. The irony killed itself now. <laughs> <laughs> no, so if I, if I had a kryptonite, that would be that. Fair enough. Listen, or your journey is so inspiring. At the end of the day, it's like it's almost difficult to get out of you like the 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 story because you make it sound easy, and I know you're not faking it. I know that, and I'm feeling that at the end of the day, you just see it as something that's natural, the journey that you took. But it's anything but. And I, and I respect you for it. And I very much hope that the people listening were able to also get, you know, some sound bites here of, you know, somebody who is grounded uh, and, and through being grounded and approachable. As Renan said, you're able to, well, not really ring a bell, but the closest to it on a stock exchange. Yeah. And, and even if that wasn't even the, the, the end game, I don't think that matters because as you're saying, you're it's 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 all a part of the journey and it sounds like your journey is uh you know you, that you don't you see your journey as far from over so beautiful milestones along the way uh and thank you for sharing your story with us hey thanks for having me this has been great and as i said i hope i hope it, it, it will give some interesting thoughts to people to think about i think so awesome awesome thank you so much real life superpowers Superpowers.